Well, welcome here to you all. If you're uh, new or a visitor, my name is Dave. I'm our lead pastor here. And we are continuing in our series on what it means to be citizens of the kingdom. Look at the the Beatitudes specifically in Matthew chapter 5. As we begin, I want to just ask you, what comes to mind when you hear the word peace? I know know for a lot of people, for a lot of people, it's maybe a sense of inner tranquility. You have images maybe of a a seascape or a tranquil garden. That's what we might picture. Our minds go to, yeah, somewhere like that. That's, That's peace. Or maybe we think of the absence of conflict, like the idea that like the guns, they're just put down, maybe literally or figuratively. In this seventh beatitude, Jesus means much more than these. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Note, the blessing is not for those who are peaceful, Uh, those who have found sort of inner tranquility or peace. It's not for those who love peace. It's not even for the peacekeepers. The blessed ones, those who have this deep fundamental approval of God, are the peacemakers. This means participating with the living God in the kind of peace that he is bringing to bear in the world through the whole of creation. How could we possibly do that? Well, surely only God can bring that kind of peace, right? You'd be right to think so. But somehow the living God invites us, calls us, beckons us, commissions us to be a part of his peaceful reign, to participate in his redemption of the whole of the world, one small corner of it at a time. Let's just pray as we dig into what that looks like today. Father, thank you so much that, um, that through your son, Jesus, you are the peacemaking God. Holy Spirit, we ask now that as we turn our attention to the words of Jesus, what he taught here, that our hearts would be wide open to everything ultimately that you have to teach us today. We ask this for your glory and our joy. Amen. Now, as we begin today, we we would do well to remember that before Jesus sits down and begins teaching the Sermon on the Mount, which this is the introduction to, before he, he speaks these words of who is the blessed ones, what are citizens of the kingdom like, he came healing people. He walked onto the scene, casting out spirits that were oppressing people and welcoming people into the family of God. When Jesus comes, his first announcement is, repent. Like, do a U-turn in your thinking and in the whole direction of your life. Your allegiances, change them. Repent and believe the gospel. Believe the good news, for the kingdom of God has come near. He's saying what God has planned and intended, God is now doing. And we find out that he's doing it in and through Jesus right then and there. Now, the word for gospel that Jesus uses here, when he says believe the gospel, is is a Greek word euangelion. And, And it's where we get the word evangelize from and evangelical. Evangelize means to tell the news. And evangelical is to live by the news. Those are what those two words mean. And for in Isaiah 52, 7, we read this. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim 
peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Jesus, in his coming, his feet carrying him along through that, the dusty world that he's moving through around Galilee, he is announcing this peace. It's a peace that, not, that the world doesn't understand, but it's the one that God has always planned for. And we need to understand now God's vision of peace. So peace in the biblical story is not merely inner tranquility, but what will lead to that. Uh, nor is it simply the absence of conflict, though that will be necessary at some point too. The Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And shalom means wholeness, soundness, well-being, or harmony. So God created the world for relational harmony. That's what shalom is. And this is the theme of the whole storyline of the Bible. That's what he creates and redeems to achieve is his shalom from Genesis to Revelation. That's the storyline. So it doesn't simply mean put down the guns, uh, live with civility, though it certainly will include that. It's harmony of relationship, like, hey, pull up your chair. There is a seat for you at the table. You are welcomed in. Shalom, the soundness that God created the world for under his gracious rule, that is what we are being called to enjoy. And that's why God can be named the God of peace. We find that phrase several times in the New Testament. God's very nature is the one of peace, of relational harmony. He designed the world for harmony at every relationship. You've heard me say it a million times. Humans with God, us with each other, us with our own selves, and us with the rest of creation. Daryl Johnson says it well. Shalom is psychosomatic, relational, economic, racial, and spiritual wholeness. In his excellent chapter, he goes on to offer some texts that picture this wholeness, especially from Isaiah. Let me read some for you. Isaiah 2.4. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Note, not only do they put their weapons down, they dismantle them. They make them into objects for cultivating the earth and bringing good things out of it rather than for destroying people. More, they even stop people training in how to use these things. That's shalom. Isaiah 11.6, the wolf will, lie, will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. This is shalom. Isaiah 35, the desert and parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. That is shalom. It's God's good world as God intended it to be. That's the picture that the Bible offers. And so you see, shalom has not come until the very causes of war, the causes of the inner turmoil, are revealed, dealt with, and healed. And who can accomplish that kind of peace but God alone? Well, exactly. 
Yet, this is the sort of peace that Jesus is announcing when he comes with his beautiful feet. But more, Jesus not only announces this peace, he is the prince of peace, as the book of Isaiah puts it. He's the source of restoring peace. He is our peace, as Paul will later say it. For we need to remember Jesus is God himself, God with us, and has come to make this peace between God and humanity, and then to restore the rest of creation to this soundness, the wholeness he intended it for. But how? Those beautiful feet of Jesus, the ones that bring him to bear this good news, as the story unfolds, we see that Jesus allows those very feet to be nailed to an ugly cross. In this way, he comes bearing the results of all of our conflict and everything that led to it, the sin, the rebellion, the self-centeredness, he bears it in his own body on the cross to restore us to relationship with God. Colossians 1, 19 and 20, here Paul says it like this, for God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, in Jesus Christ, God the Son, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Do you see the scope of this peace? He makes it possible to heal relationships at every level, all things, whether things in heaven or on earth. All things is a lot of things. And how? His broken body. His shed blood. What happens at the cross is the sight of God's peacemaking, shalom-making work. And all who want to be included in it, brought into that relationship with God, it's now wide open to us. Jesus has paid it all. And note, this kind of peace, God's peace, is costly. We'll remember that as we move forward. Jesus' death for us signals how forgiveness can be offered. It already was to us. Have you taken it into yourself? And we who have taken it into ourselves, God beckons us to the same kind of life in our relationships with others. When we are personally restored to peace at great cost to God, we are then able to begin the great work of peacemaking with others. So Jesus' death is the very basis for healing of relationships. Those who've been historically and religiously and racially alienated from each other too. Listen to how Paul says it in Ephesians 2. For he himself, speaking of Jesus, for he himself is our, our peace. Who has made the two groups, he's speaking of Jews and Gentiles there, who has made the two groups into one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, right? Relational harmony. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God, that's the relationship with God too, through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. God puts to death our hostility with each other too, through the work of the cross. God's plan is that this peace 
would unite divided groups to make us one people. Now, look again at the promise. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Now, technically, the phrase in Matthew's gospel is they will be called sons of God. Uh, I understand and appreciate that we ought to translate the word sons in many places in the New Testament as children, because it doesn't relate just to men, it relates to men and women, as it does here. This relates to men and women as well. That said, uh, the ancient world, with its inbuilt male-centeredness, in that world, a son was a person who was the inheritor of status, responsibility, and in large part, the financial assets of a family. So to be known as a son of God is not to exclude women from this, but rather to highlight two things. Number one, Though it's true that all through faith in Jesus become children of God, we have this position of belonging to God as his children. The language of being a son is about mirroring the very character, reflecting the character of our father. This is about family likeness. So we use that phrase in, the culture, in our culture too. To say someone is a son of the devil, for example, that means that their character, the way that they live is in line with, well, the devil. They're, they're like their father, it's, it's sort of to say. I, I, more familiar, perhaps, someone is a son of a, I'm not gonna finish the sentence, but you can, to say that, some, son of a something. Again, it's a less flattering way to speak of someone's character. So to be known as a son of God is to say, I am like God, reflecting and resembling him. And I think we are never more like our father in heaven than when we are about the work of peacemaking. Second thing, in Jesus' times, with the sons of inher as inheritors of the family name, the land, all the benefits of the inheritance, well, Israel was as a nation called God's son. That's Deuteronomy 14 or Hosea chapter one. But throughout their history, they had largely taken that for granted. In fact, Israel, at the time that Jesus had come, was enamored with the political, religious, and militaristic attempts to establish their supremacy over their enemies. They had a self-centered vision of the kingdom, one that would come at the point of the sword too. They were uh, deeply against their Gentile neighbors. They had very, very nasty language to speak of the Gentiles around them. So there was a hostility there. That came from both sides too. Here then, Jesus comes to overturn that agenda and offer a striking promise. Those who are actually sons of God are not the aggressive, the violent, the ones grabbing for power. No, the sons of, the, of God are the ones who accept and live in God's way of peacemaking. These ones are meek, merciful, they love righteousness. They are pure in heart. And people will see the family resemblance when we live like that as peacemakers in our world. In many ways, I think as we've seen throughout the series, uh, there is a progression. The beatitude before feeds and sustains the possibility of the next, of the next virtue of citizens of the kingdom. And so it's important to note then that this list of beatitudes begins with those who are poor in spirit 
and those who mourn are meek, are hungry for righteousness, are merciful, are pure in heart, and now they're able to work as peacemakers, even as they will face persecution eventually. This is not describing then eight different kind of people. As if you could say, well, I'm really into mourning, but that bit about meekness, not so much. Or, yeah, I really can, I can get on board with the being poor in spirit bit, but, but not persecuted. I'll, I'll take comfort over persecution any day. No, this is a picture of one person. A person who, by God's grace, God gets a hold of and forms them. So all of these virtues, all of these pieces become built into. And as I said, there is a progression. Uh, peacemaking, like I said, you're never more like God than when you're a peacemaker will require all of these things before. Number one, those who are peacemakers are those who have made a U-turn, who have raised the white flag and said, God, I, I surrender to you. I've stopped fighting against you in your ways. And as one who is poor in spirit, I am now open to your love and rescue. That's the place it starts. So peacemakers are those who are operating with their hearts wide open to God in his ways. Sometimes it actually helps to look at the opposite. So let, let me do that just for a second. Let's just imagine, consider, without being poor in spirit, like without that humility before God, without an honesty about our own failings and how I personally have contributed to the evil of the world and without having mourned over that and over the brokenness of the world, what chances will I really have of becoming a peacemaker? Like, won't you be more likely to contribute undeterred to the unraveling of God's shalom? Without meekness, like without a gentleness and calm that I bring to a situation, you'll either, through abrasiveness or maybe passive aggression, work against the proverb that says, a gentle answer turns away wrath. And instead, you'll be stirring up <laughs> wrath with other people. You won't be a source of peace, you'll actually be uh, working against it. Without hungering and thirsting for righteousness, for God's right relatedness, your own hungers, maybe for recognition, maybe your hunger for power, uh, to get your way over others, will deepen rifts, or maybe cause an apathy at the very idea of making peace. For those who aren't keen on extending mercy, how will hurts be mended? if what you have in mind is just meting out justice that you think the other deserves. No desire to put yourself in the shoes of the other. And without a purity of heart, like a desire to function with sincerity and integrity, without that abhorrence of your own potential for sliding into hypocrisy, man, manipulation, self-interest, a desire to control, a lust for power over others, that will take over. All of this to say that, that these things are all needed if you're going to be a peacemaker in the world. You're not going to be a peacemaker uh, apart from letting God transform and work in your heart and work out all of these virtues. So by God's grace, may it be so in us. Now, that's all kind of the background theoretical stuff. Let's just get more practical for a few minutes. How do we go about peacemaking? First, the posture. I've mentioned this already. Our heart posture for making peace starts by being restored to the Prince of Peace himself. That's the only way that I will enter into being a person of justice and mercy 
in the world of making peace. This is key then. We are not children of God because we are peacemakers. We're peacemakers because by God's grace we're children of God. It's God's action first in Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit that can make us into the sort of people who can actually pursue peace in our world. And then what does it look like to live as peacemakers? Let's get into some details. What does it include? The first is evangelism. Remember, Jesus comes announcing God's peace. He is evangelizing. He's speaking about God's salvation that has come. Remember Isaiah 52, 7, how lovely on the, are the feet of him who brings good news. Remember that? Paul takes that same verse, the exact quote, and in Romans 10 says, how can they believe if they haven't heard? It's his, the sa- in the same way that Jesus came proclaiming peace, making it known that you can be at peace with God, so too God's people are running with this, this beautiful news on beautiful feet into the world. The evangel people then, the people of good news, captivated by the one whose beautiful feet were nailed to the tree, they are a people who hold out this hope to all and sundry, to return, to come home. Our our message is that the God against whom we've all rebelled, against whom we are truly and desperately separated from, the loving God has come near through Jesus and his arms are wide open. He paid it all so we could come home. So come home. That's our message. Come to the table. Take up your place as a child of God in the new community of God. So to be a peacemaker is to help people connect to the God of peace. It's why each year we run an alpha program, and we're really hoping to run that again this September. I'll be looking for people to help run that, to cook for it. It's a way for you to maybe invite friends, neighbors to come and discover who the God of peace really is. It's why we send you each week at the end of our services back into your neighborhoods to be bearers of this peace. Because Jesus had become our peace, how could we not seek to introduce others to the Prince of Peace? The second thing is that we seek the peace of our city. Peacemakers are called to make peace in much broader ways than simply announcing it. D.A. Carson says it well, the Christian's role as peacemaker extends to lessening tensions seeking solutions, ensuring that communication is understood. When God's people were exiled in Babylon for a time, they were told to seek the peace of the city where God had placed them, to be agents of wholeness and soundness right there in their town. We do so as well, when with level heads and meekness and mercy and patience and a hunger for right-relatedness, We aim to bring God's peace into our workplaces, to be people who reflect God's heart for harmony. When we partner with organizations, uh, we're seeking to bring wholeness and soundness to people. We refer people to counselors here at Summit Drive. Like if you are at a place where you're in desperate need of sorting things out in your mind and heart, we pay for people to go to counseling, at least three sessions with, with people we trust and know. That's one of the ways that we're trying to be peacemakers in our city. When we partner with the Pregnancy Care Center or the Mustard Seed, we're seeking the peace of our city in which God has planted us. And and that flows out uh, in many other ways as well. Personally, in your workplace, you walk into it as a peacemaker. 
And third, peacemaking is costly. I can honestly say that I was never in like a fist fight in school. Not one, but I can remember um, there was a fight that broke out in front of me when I was in grade nine. I didn't know either of the boys that were a part of it, but one was small like me, and one was very large and aggressive. And I realized in that moment, this was not a fight, it was a flogging. And I don't remember my thought process at the time, but I remember throwing my books down and pulling the larger one off the, big, off the smaller one and then standing between them. Maybe I wasn't afraid because I grew up in a household with two brothers, and this didn't really seem unlike, you know, an average day for us in our house. Uh, but I do remember a sense of this is not okay. And it was coursing through my veins. It was a hunger for righteousness, for justice, you might say. And it was a moment then of entering the fray. Now, I wanted to use that illustration because peacemaking for me today generally does not look like that. I'm not in grade nine anymore. There are very few fist fights right in front of me. Though I can remember one time uh, being in Prince George, seeing someone assaulted and running toward it rather than everyone else running away from it. Sometimes it, it actually does cause us to say, we need to step in to this. But I, I give you that illustration to say that the act of peacemaking does call us into the fray. It pictures why we might be afraid of our vocation, our calling as peacemakers too, because there are risks involved with stepping toward. It's easier to say nothing, right? It's easier to do nothing. I can honestly say that probably the hardest part of my vocation as a follower of Jesus has resulted from this part of my Christian vocation, my calling to be a person of peace. Why is it hard? Well, because peacemaking in one way or another will be confronting the rebellious human heart, and that will always be resisted to some extent. For surely E. Stanley Jones was right. He said, people hate to be disturbed, even for the better. In his letter from the Birmingham jail, Martin Luther King Jr., he had been imprisoned, many of you will recognize this part, He'd been imprisoned for his work of leading peaceful protests as a part of um, addressing the unjust laws that kept uh, black Americans down in the 1960s. When he was jailed for it, he wrote the following, and it continues to ring in our ears with with racial tension still very much a part of our reality. He said this, I must confess that over the past few years, I've been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I've almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate who's more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. Note the distinction in how he speaks about peace there. He speaks specifically of the biblical vision of peace, which is not the absence of tension. It's not just, okay, everybody just calm down a little bit. It's not that. But the harmony and wholeness, the way things ought to be-ness, he was pointing to God's shalom. Remember, how does Jesus make peace with us? Through his own self-sacrifice, through self-sacrificial love. It will cost us to make peace too. It cost Martin Luther King Jr. his life, 
Seeking peace will be the same for us to some extent or another. It will be costly. But at some point, we have to reckon with the reality that the cross of Jesus is not only the means of our salvation, but the shape of it. We become cross-shaped, cruciform people. If you want to follow Jesus, then you listen to what Jesus says here. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. So the cross-shaped life defines those who belong to Jesus. This is not an optional add-on for those who particularly are, you know, really serious about Jesus. This is normal discipleship. Jesus makes peace through his sacrificial love and then calls us to do the same. Dietrich Bonhoeffer helped me to see this the most, at least one part of it. He says, what is Jesus actually doing on the cross? Well, he's bearing the sins of others so that he can make peace with them, so that there could be reconciliation. He's forgiving them. He's bearing the consequence so that forgiveness can be offered freely. What are we doing then when we take up our cross? Surely it's the same. We are bearing with others who have wronged us, not making them pay, offering them forgiveness, seeking reconciliation if they'll have it, really making peace. And certainly it means putting aside our aim for comfort in order to enter into the messy way of peacemaking. So where do we start? Well, um, there are a number of small steps that we can take to engage in life as peacemakers. Notice how Paul says it in Romans 12, verse 18. If possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. The if possible and depends on you, that's really important. Not everybody will want to live at peace with you. And that's a reality we have to hold on to and, and just come to terms with. But what I want to talk about is what we can do, the things that are within our reach and grasp, as far as it depends on you. Now, Daryl Johnson has an excellent book on the Beatitudes, and he talks about five small steps. I'm going to borrow from them. I've rearranged them a little bit in my own ways, but I really like how he puts it. So step one is this. We can affirm our identity and calling as peacemakers. You can look in the mirror in the morning and say, I am a peacemaker. That may not be how you see yourself right now, but if you're a follower of Jesus, that's one of the things that we need to do to say, that is my calling today. By God's grace, that's the place I start from. So affirm your God-given calling. Step two, we can acknowledge any resistance to God in our hearts. In that moment of confession, we can ask God to melt our resistance and turn our hearts back toward his ways and his, in, pardon me, his ways in the world. Step three, we can acknowledge any anger that still remains in our hearts against others, against ourselves, against God. We can ask God to heal the anger in our hearts as we entrust these wounds to him. Step four, we can acknowledge the fear in our hearts. Fear of what people might think or what might happen if we step into the fray and partner with God in this task of peacemaking. Ask Jesus to meet you and overcome that fear. And step five, affirm again the gospel. Stand again in the sure reality that the God of peace has come near in the Prince of Peace gave his life to make peace with us and God and to one day have his new creation bring peace to the whole of the world.
that we can be a part of that through faith in Jesus. As Mortimer Arius of Bolivia put it, like a seed forcing its way upward through the soil, stones and thistles of this world, like a fire that has been kindled over the earth, who can stop it? Daryl Johnson elaborates, no one and nothing. No one and nothing can finally stand in the way of God's kingdom. Shalom is coming. Easter morning guarantees it. For the Prince of Peace has defeated the greatest enemy of peace. Jesus has defeated death. Shalom is coming. See, shalom is coming because Jesus is coming. Let it be so. Of course, this peacemaking needs to be worked out in the everyday dimensions of our lives, in our homes, in our friendships, in our work and school and neighborhoods and, and city. It needs to be worked out online as well as offline. So what does that look like? How do we go about some of those really, you know, detailed, nitty-gritty, interpersonal pieces of our regular interactions? Sometimes, this work of peacemaking is helping other people work through issues that are divisive. Parents, you know that a huge part of your work in life, uh, if you have more than one child at least, <laughs> is as a peacemaker. You might feel more like a referee than a dad a lot of days. You know, you're dishing out calm down corners and overseeing apologies. Man, this is hard work, but it's good work. That's the work you're called to. But perhaps most common and most challenging is, is the part of peacemaking that comes down to our own interpersonal interactions with our insecurities, with our egos, with our love for the other person, and, and that's all wrapped up together. So here's a few, just three basics as we close today in approaching a matter between maybe you and a friend or a family member or a spouse or a coworker. First, pray. Sounds so cliche to say, hey, did you pray about it yet? Thanks, pastor. Uh, but honestly, it sounds so simple, and it is, but it is actually profoundly difficult. When you are in the midst of a conflict, to be like, I need to stop and talk to God about this, simple, really hard, necessary, first step. What do we pray? We pray, God, help. <laughs> uh, Jonathan Dodson, he suggests, tell God how it makes you feel and what you're struggling to believe. Be honest with him. Pray with the psalmist. Search me and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me. Do you see what that does? It invites God to have his way in us. It prepares us to take responsibility for our part in the conflict that we need to acknowledge. Second step, evaluate. Like, is this something that I even need to be angry about? Is it really a sin issue or is this just a, a slight? Is this something I can simply overlook? Um, Proverbs 10, 12, hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers over all offenses. First Peter, in First Peter 4, 8, we read, love covers a multitude of sins. A multitude is a lot. Uh, or Proverbs 19.11, it's to one's glory to overlook an offense. I had a wise pastor mentor back in Ontario, and he gave me this little piece of wisdom. He said like this, the, the, in our immaturity, we tend to have thin skin and hard hearts. Thin skin meaning things can get to us so easily. Every slight we just take so personally and we internalize it, we wrestle over it and it makes us angry, but then hard hearts. 
Hearts that are hard toward the other, they're not quick to forgive, they're not slow to speak and slow to get angry. No, they're, they're hard-heartedness. We don't release the other person, we, we wanna make them pay. Maybe it's through silences, maybe it's through ignoring them, maybe it's much more aggressive than that. But maturity in Christ, it's the opposite of that. As we grow in maturity in Christ, we get thicker skins and softer hearts. Thick skins, easily overlooking offenses, ready to really give the benefit of the doubt to the other. And oh, that we might have soft hearts, quick to forgive, ready for mending fences, building bridges, even in difficult circumstances. I know not every situation can be mended. I know it. But part of what cultivating a soft heart is, is preparing for forgiveness, being ready to offer it, already doing that work in your own heart. It doesn't mean the other person is ready for reconciliation. No, it doesn't. And that's why Paul says, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. The third step, go. Jesus says that we're to pursue reconciliation. It, it just later in this very sermon, he says, first go and be reconciled to them and then come offer your gift. So if there's something that you've discerned through prayer, through evaluation, yes, this actually does need to be dealt with, or this person, they've got something against me and I need to sort it through with them, then there is a place where out of a, a poverty of spirit, a willingness to, to recognize how we've contributed to, to the issue, not, not blame shifting, but, but taking responsibility, we go with meekness and gentleness, humility in order to seek restoration. Not on the one hand to be right and to make a point, nor on the other to just smooth things over uh, that actually do need to be dealt with. No, what Paul means is that we speak the truth in love. It's Ephesians 4, 15. Truth and love combined. Dodson said it well, peace grows in the soil of meekness. So after taking responsibility for our part, then we communicate clearly and fairly as we can how you felt about their actions and words. Give the person the benefit of the doubt and, and, and don't make assumptions. When I get it wrong, and I do, it's often because I haven't listened long enough. I haven't been patient enough, and I'm learning that. Again, Dodson, look to empathize and forgive, not to be right or to avoid further hurt. Instead, aim to regard Christ above all things, seeking his glory, his mercy, and enjoying his favor together. Certainly, peacemaking is hard work. It is costly. It will, it will tear our hearts apart if we enter into the fray. But how could it be any other way? For the one who gave his life to restore us to peace with him, Jesus our Lord, now calls us, take up your cross and follow me. Give yourself to be a people of peace. Let's pray. Lord, even as I was preaching today, uh, you're reminding me of just how far you went to make peace possible. You're reminding me of the reality that we are always, until you return, Jesus, we are going to have moments of conflict. L little ones and big ones and in-between ones. And so, Lord, we come to you today confessing that we, we often choose comfort over the costly way of peacemaking. We ask, Father, that uh, 
through a work, your work in our hearts, that you would lead us to be courageous peacemakers. And we thank you, oh, we thank you that you made peace through your shed blood, your broken body, so that we might experience your shalom forever. We give you glory for that. Amen.